If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Ruth. We're going to continue our study in Ruth in chapter 3. And in our text today, we get a picture of a risque faith. And yes, I do mean risque. It is risky, but it is also risque. We find that Ruth isn't quite the prudish woman that many times people think of when they think of biblical um, heroines. So, she's not immoral, but she is scandalous in many ways. What else do you call slipping in bed with a drunken man at night drenched in perfume, right? So it's, it's a risky pursuit of rest. And we'll define what that word rest means in a little bit. Little bit. But what I hope you see through this is uh, that faith many times looks like placing ourselves in very risky and vulnerable situations where only a generous and gracious God can work out the details. Well, there's no way that we could really know the outcome, but we place ourselves there, allowing God to work. And when we strive after God in that way, we see promises that he gives us to settle the matter, even when life throws us plot twists. And it almost always does, that he will work out those details. So as we read through this, I want you to be thinking of ways that God might be asking you to step out in faith in certain situations. It's kind of hard reading these narrative passages, isn't it, where it's very specific about a specific person, but what God calls us to do is to read these and then see our lives through this lens. All of Scripture is inspired. It's all given for us, so it's not just a story to show us kind of just an example. It's calling us to respond in faith in our own lives. So while the passage isn't prescriptive, it is descriptive. It's just telling us what happened in Ruth's life, but I want you to apply this to your life as well. How is God asking you to step out in faith? Again, the text is Ruth 3. We're going to read the entirety of the chapter. It is verse 1 through 18. These are the words of God. Let's give attention to them this morning, church. It says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth. Your servant, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, which whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet There is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she laid his feet until the morning. 
but arose before one could could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring your garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Father, once again we approach your holy word given to us for so many things, for our encouragement, for teaching us, to speaking to our hearts, to changing us and causing us to turn away from our sin and towards you in repentance and faith in your son Jesus. So Lord, we pray that through this text, through this story, we would see Jesus clearly, that we would see how he applies his salvation to us and to our souls. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So as we've been doing um, each and every week as we go through the book of Ruth, we kind of jump back a little bit to look at the context to kind of bring us up to speed. So I'll do that now. I won't hit every point because a lot has happened so far in this context, but I will bring up what is per, uh, uh, pertaining to today that kind of gets us to where we can pick up the story where we are in chapter 3. So we remember Ruth and Naomi have arrived in Bethlehem with this kind of social awkwardness. Remember, Naomi comes into the city and they say, is that even you, Naomi? Right? She, she says, don't call me Naomi, though. I'm bitter. Call me Mara. So we don't know why they didn't recognize her. We don't know what kind of change this was, but there was something about Naomi that had changed. So she comes in, and she's unrecognizable and bitter, and Ruth in that story is ignored. Remember, she's standing right next to Naomi, who says, I'm empty, while her daughter-in-law stands next to her. Now, Ruth somewhere along the way has gained a social standing of one who's upstanded even though she's a foreigner. Remember, Boaz praises her. Remember, he's asking about this lady, and even the, the person looking over the reaper says she's been a hard worker. She's worked from morning until now, hasn't even taken a break, but just a short minute. So she's a hard worker. She's faithful to her deceased husband. Boaz says, I've heard of you. She's faithful to her mother-in-law to care for her, even though her mother-in-law has really been awful to her. She's still faithful to her, even through all this. And she's showing this display of self-care to even seek personal favor. She's still trying. She's still at it. She's still trying to better herself and find this rest. So Ruth finds grace in the field of Boaz. That's what we saw last time in which we said in many ways that field of Boaz was kind of a type of the church, that place of rest and refuge. So what happens? She meets Boaz and he fills her arms with grain, her belly with food, and her heart with loving kindness. But there's still something lacking. Right? The story isn't over. That was just one day. She gleaned in the field, she got her belly filled up, and she went home. But there's more to be had. There was still a further rest for her to have, a completeness to where she would have the sustaining refuge, a sustaining um, care from Boaz. So that is what we're going to look at today, this idea of complete rest, wholeness in God. And we see in this story, this idea of rest, we can kind of look at the context and see things that have happened thus far. In verse or chapter 1, verse 9, Naomi is talking and she gives this prayer to the Lord. She says, The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. 
So she's wanting rest for her daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. So that's her will for them at that time. But that was back in Moab. Remember, a lot has happened since we left Moab. That was back then and there. Now Naomi recognizes that's not going to happen for Ruth. Right? It's not going to work out. It didn't work. So now they're back in Bethlehem. And note that this was a prayer. Naomi's praying for her daughter-in-law. The Lord bless you and that you might, might find rest. Now, have you ever been in a place in life where you're praying for something very specifically and then you realize along the way that it's just not going to work out like that? So you kind of have to shift a little bit in your prayer life. You still are wanting the same basic thing, but you realize God might have a little bit of a different plan. So this has happened to Naomi along the way. If we read in our text today, chapter 3, verse 1, Naomi still wants the same thing for her daughter-in-law. It says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? So she's still after this rest for her daughter-in-law. So how do they do that? What does this look like, this seeking rest? Well, we'll answer that in a minute. But first, let's dig a little bit deeper. What does this rest mean? We've touched on it a little bit thus far. Well, rest here is actually touching on a very deeply biblical idea that stretches all the way back to Genesis. Right? Do you remember? What did God do on the seventh day? God even rested. Six days you labor, and then on the seventh day you work. So there's this pattern of rest that's even built into the creation. We need this rest. God even does this rest. Further, on Mount Sinai, when God is kind of giving the explicit order of reality, he gives the Ten Commandments. These are the, the laws that should govern your life. He says, you shall labor six days, and on the seventh day you shall rest. Why? Because that's what I do, and I want you to be my people. You are my possession, and you are going to act like me. I want you guys to model your life after my life. You are to be like me. So we have this idea of rest all through the Old Testament, but then even into the New, we start seeing rest even more. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says this in verse 1 through 3, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should, should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news, or we might say the gospel, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. So you get this biblical idea of rest only by entering into it through faith or believing in it. But we know that faith isn't just this mental ascent, is it? Faith is lived out. It's practical. It's dead without works. So there's this action that we have to do where we're acting out in faith, where we're acting out in belief. So... Rest in Ruth's narrative picks up on that idea, right? Living out their life in faithfulness. So rest for them meant continuing the line of the people of the covenant. Because through their seed would come the Messiah, right? That's the promise given to Abraham. Through your seed I will bless all the nations of the world. They didn't know how that would work out. They didn't know what it looked like to see Jesus, to see God incarnate. They had no idea. All they knew is that they are supposed to have more babies, right? They're going to have more kids, build houses, build up society, continue to live on faithfully. And that's what rest looked like to them. Believing God is going to work through that kind of pattern, through this simple living out lives of 
faithfulness and fruitfulness, right? Being productive, actually working hard at life and, and continuing on the seed. So that's why in verse 2, Naomi says, is not Boaz our relative? Now, some of your translations might actually say, is not Boaz your kinsman? It's a more literal translation. Uh, but Hebrew in Hebrew, relative and kinsman kind of mean the same thing because most relations had to do with the continuation of children, right? It's about reproduction. Like all of life was kind of family-centered and moving forward in family. So she says, is not Boaz your kinsman? Is he not your relative? So the rest here is speaking of a cessation or a stop of work through the provisions of a kinsman redeemer. How are they going to get the rest? They're going to get it through the rest of a redeemer who would do that work for them. What would the kinsman do? We've looked at this a little bit. The kinsman would purchase back the land and possessions of a deceased man, marry the widow, and produce children for the man so that the promises of God might be fulfilled through them. That was the rest that Naomi and Ruth are looking for. Because you remember, their, their husbands are dead. And Naomi says, I'm too old. My husband's dead. I can't have any kids. It's too late for that. Ruth, on the other hand, she originally thought, well, you can go back to Moab and have kids. But we see that didn't work out. Ruth clung to her. She stayed. She went to Bethlehem. So here they're now looking for Ruth, a husband that is an Israelite. So they're getting a little bit more on track, aren't they? They're trying to find rest in the right way. And this is how Naomi's prayers kind of shifted and changed over time. She's seeing, ah, actually God works in the ways that he's prescribed for us. I work in Israel. I, I take care of my people. Don't worry about them. Worry about yourself. Take care of your people. Marry your people. Don't marry their people. So that's what they're going to do. So how do they do this, though? How does Naomi and Ruth seek that rest? Here's where the story gets juicy. <laughs> so they devise a plan, which Naomi is known to do. She's made plans for Ruth at other times, and that didn't work out. And we got to be careful about that, don't we? Making plans for other people. So she devises another plan to get Ruth hitched. So here's the plan. She says, essentially, Ruth, Boaz has seen you sweaty and nasty working out the field. But it's time for you to doll up, right? you you got to get yourself cleaned up, clean yourself up, put on some perfume. It says anoint yourself with oil, verse 3. Veil yourself with a cloak, and then you're supposed to go out, right? Now, what, what is she talking about there with the anointing of the oil um, and, the, and the cloak? That that's, might be a little bit blurry for us. Well, obvi- I think obviously the, the anointing oil is perfume, and there was really only two uses of perfume in that day. It was very expensive, and it's not something that everyone just sprayed on like now. You throw on your Hollister cologne now every single day and you go out and you live a life of luxury. Well, that's not what they did. Oil really only had two uses. There was the ordination of priests and later on in Israel they started using oil to um, ordain kings as well. Well, we know that Naomi isn't telling Ruth to go out and ordain Boaz as a king or anything like that. The other use was the use of making yourself attractive. Kind of the idea of like the Proverbs woman. Remember, she's anointed herself. She's out in the streets and she says, hey, my bed is filled with spices right? and cinnamon. It smells sweet. It smells good. So there's this kind of like seduction element that's going on here. She's obviously trying to be attractive and to pretty herself up, to doll up for Boaz. Okay, so you get that. You get this element of trying to come after him, spicing herself up. And then what about the cloak? What is that about? Well, the cloak was there because the, the custom back then was if you're going to go into this, if this area of this threshing floor, it was not customary of women to be there. So she's throwing this cloak. 
Because that's where the, the men go after work. That, that was kind of the custom. They'd go work all day, work real hard at the threshing floor, and then after they would kind of essentially party. They'd eat their drink, and they would usually just hang out there all night. Sometimes they'd make it home. Sometimes they wouldn't. So she says, go into that place. So cloak yourself, put it on. That's why you see in verse 14, if you look ahead. Remember, Boaz makes that kind of interesting statement. He says, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Right? He doesn't say, let it not be known that you. He says that the woman... So it's kind of it's scandalous for Ruth to do this. This is unorthodox. This is unordinary. It's not normal for there to be a woman there. So she tells her doll up, put the cloak on. Then verse three and four, she says, wait until he's fat and happy, passes out, he's eaten, he's drunk, and you go and then you uncover his feet. Weird, right? You uncover his feet and lie down next to him, and then he'll tell you what to do. So we can kind of get this mental picture now. This is obviously a little bit risque. Like, what is going to happen? So what happens is is she goes, she watches him through the evening, and he doesn't even make it home. He doesn't even make it home to bed. He falls asleep under the stars on what? Verse 7. He falls asleep on a heap of grain. The man who is being pursued for his redemption seed, right? We had this imagery of the seed all along that kind of has been following us, this physical seed, and then there's this relational seed. So she's pursuing him for his redemption seed, and then this man that she's pursuing for the redemption seed literally falls asleep on a mound of seed as to say, Boaz definitely has what you need, Ruth. Right? He's got it all. He's got so much seed, he's falling asleep on it. Like, it's all there. So... Can you see the tension there? There's this kind of just awkwardness, interesting story going on. But let me just clear up a bit of the rumors before we go ahead with this scandal. You're probably wondering what in the world is going on with the feet. What is the deal with the taking off of his shoe? Now, many Hebrew scholars, many that I even respect, say that feet doesn't mean feet. You can figure out what they say. Means I won't I won't put that in your head. Now let me tell you why I think feet actually means feet in this story. In Deuteronomy 25 it says this. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. Deuteronomy 25 5 through 10 says this. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the firstborn son whom she bears shall succeed uh, the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Right? There's the kinsman redeemer idea. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go to the gate of the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetrate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if, if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go to him in the presence of the elders, and catch this, and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. <laughs> And, and she shall say to, and she shall say to, or, wait, sorry. And he shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him whose sandal has been pulled off. Okay. 
So you can kind of get the picture now, this idea of kinsman redeemer. That's the first and I think most strong argument of why I think feet actually means feet. There's something going on here. Second, while the Hebrew language does use euphemisms a lot, um, when it's talking about intercourse, though, most of the time it says go into her or something like that. And it doesn't use that there. We don't see any of that. The third reason, the context of this passage is obviously talking about the law of Levite marriage. Right? There's that connection there. So the removal of the sandal is too obvious to ignore. There's this connection. There's only really two times in Scripture where it talks about this pulling off of the sandal. And they have to be connected. I don't see any other reason why it would have that going on there. Fourth, Boaz, all through this story, he seemed to be a man of integrity, right? He doesn't seem like the kind of guy that would be taking favors in return for the things that he's doing throughout the day. I think he genuinely is a gracious man. I think he, the provisions that he gave to Ruth, I think he was really just being a nice guy. I don't think he was trading any kind of favors. I know that some Hebrew scholars, they seem to think that, but I don't think that's the case. Lastly, I think this is actually another moment of biblical reversal. There's times in Scripture where conceptions get shifted and changed. And I believe this is really one of those. Let me remind you of a story back in Genesis. Do you remember Lot? Do you remember his daughters? Lot and his daughters had an interesting relationship, didn't they? He got drunk. Remember, they went up in the mountains, and they decided we're going to get Dad drunk so we can continue on the family line. The, the, the quote literally is, "...that we may preserve offspring from our father." So they go up in the mountains. There's no other women around. So they say, well, I guess we'll just take dad and we'll continue on the family line that way. So they took it in their own hands and then they had a son. And do you remember what that firstborn son's name was that they had out of that incestuous relationship? His name was Moab. So this people are born out of this incestuous relationship. And then we have Ruth coming along, right? Ruth is a Moabite. So Ruth from the line of an incestuous, faithless people is trying to reintegrate back into the people of God by preserving offspring the right way. Not with, and kind of just back with their own family and, you know, right? So she's trying to do this the right way. She's trying to live out the promises of God faithfully. So in essence, the proposal, yes, it's super risky and yes, it's super tense, but it's so tense because there was no release of the tension. Nothing has really actually happened yet. That's my stance through this. I don't believe that any funny business happened. Now, do remember, though, that this was a proposal to something. It was a proposal to redemption and rest, in which we said meant a husband to provide for and give children to the deceased husband. So this was a proposal to that, right? How do you consummate such a union, right? How do you get said children, right? You have to do something. Right? So it was a proposal to that, but I believe this was a, a risque and playful proposal by Ruth where she slips in this drunken man's bed, gently pulls off his sandal as if to say, what's it going to be, Mr. Redeemer? Right? Am I, am I, am I going to have to spit in your face in the morning or are you going to cover your wings and have me tonight? I think that's essentially what's going on here. It's, it's, a, it's a really out on the limb kind of proposal, but that's what happened. Right? We, have to, we have to come to terms with this is the Bible. This is what's really happened. I think that there's this idea of this redeemer having this sandal pulled off. And this is possibly uh, a way of Ruth kind of making him make a decision right then and there. What's it going to be? 
right? It's scandalous for her to do this. She's going out of the way to not follow the rules of typical Israelite custom. The, the custom, remember, was to go out during the day to talk to the elders. This is kind of a court thing. But she's going in the middle of the night at midnight, slipping off the shoe, kind of saying, what's it going to be? Right? So, so that's why it's risque. So here we have this, this proposal, but now we have his response. What does he say? He says, yes, but. Right? There's the plot twist. This is the moment in the romantic comedy when everything's going great. The, the guy and the gal, they meet and they're together and everything seems to be perfect. And the guy says, well, there is this girl. There is this one thing. There is this one hang up. So there's this more tension, this waiting on the complete rest. Everything's worked out, but there's just still this one thing. There's this delay of fulfillment. Complete rest is promised. He says, I'll do it. And you'll get it some way or another. It might be this other guy. It might be me. You're going to get it one way or another, but it's still having to work out. And that's what faith's about, isn't it? It's that kind of working out process where we're trying to figure out, what are you doing, God? How is all of this working out? So he tells her, leave early in the morning, essentially saying, we don't want to cause a scandal. We want to make sure everything looks all right. I'm, a, I'm an upstanding man. Don't run my reputation coming out here without your cloak. Put that cloak back on. And he does something very interesting. He sends her off, but he again sends her off arms full. And he gets some barley from that heap of grain that he's on. And he takes how many measures? This is where I think it's really interesting. He scoops up six measures of barley. Interesting number, right? He doesn't pick seven, which would be the number of completion, the number of rest. He picks six measures. And this this is not a technical term. This is measures. It doesn't say an ephah. So I think there's something happening here with biblical imagery showing that he's just throwing out six things. He's, he, the, the text is wanting you to see that there's this almost but not yet matter going on. So the number seven is the number of rest, but he doesn't quite give her seven. He gives her only six now, this is where I want you to kind of put on your spiritual glasses, put, put on your gospel glasses. How do we read our lives through this text? Because right, this is God's word for us. Where I'm, I'm preaching to you. You're supposed to be able to somehow walk out of here and say that God is doing something to me through this word. Right? That's the whole goal here. We, just don't, we, don't, we don't just read about biblical characters and think, wow, I know more about the Bible now. We want to we have our faith engaged. So Ruth is actually quite formative when we start to look at the conceptions of God in the Bible, how people think about God and how God reveals himself actually changes a little bit after the story of Ruth. Before Ruth, a redeemer was a man. It was a, a role that a man took on in the law where he would propagate children. He would do that kind of thing. And there's only one other time in Scripture before Ruth where God says, I'll redeem you. He says in Exodus, I will redeem you. And it's kind of just this passing comment that he makes. But after the book of Ruth, he explodes by saying, I am your redeemer. So Boaz really takes on this role to reflect the image of God and that he is a faithful redeemer. And then God, through the prophets, speaking through the prophets and so much of the Old Testament and the writings, God reveals himself as redeemer. He says, I am your redeemer, right? We, we just take that for granted now that God is our redeemer. But there was a time when God hadn't really revealed himself in that way. So we see that Boaz takes on this new role of redeemer. And then God, we can see now, is our redeemer. Does that make sense? So God is our redeemer. So we see from this story that Jesus is our true redeemer, right? 
He's the one that takes on that role for us. But who are we in this story? Where do we fit in? What does this story tell us about ourselves? Well, further we can see that, yes, the prophets portray <coughs> Ruth, or Boaz in that way, but what are, the way that, what are the ways that they portray us or the roots of the story? Well, in Ezekiel 16.8, it says, When I, that is Yahweh, passed by you and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you, right? There's that imagery again. Spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you and you became mine, says the Lord. So not only is God our redeemer, but we are the ones that are naked, in need of being covered. And like Ruth, we are spiritually in need of rest. We can't provide it on our own. We have to go searching and striving after it. And God offers himself to us when we pursue him in that way. That kind of act of living out our faith. And God reveals himself as one who fulfills that law of redemption for us. He's went ahead and did all the work for us. That's what a redeemer does. A redeemer purchases back something. So he offers his provision to us in the form of salvation. And how does he do that? Well, he purchases us back with his own blood. Right? It's not just things anymore. There's this spiritual element where God comes in and he provides us a righteousness that we could not earn on our own. He did it. He had to do it. And no one else could do it. And we're simply grafted in through the, the marriage, we might say, of God. We are his bride. That's the imagery that it gives us in Scripture to where we are kind of like the Ruths who are in desperate need of a Savior to spread his wings over us to take us into his refuge, to care for us, to give us provisions through our life. And many times that calls for us to take this risky faith. Right? You get there and you find that rest in God, not just by leaning back and just saying, well, God will figure it out. No, it's, it's a pursuit. It's this risky and maybe even risque at times where we're having to go out on a limb and say, I don't know how all this is going to work out. God, you're going to have to sort out the details, but I'm throwing myself out there to, to be vulnerable and to put myself in a place where only you can sort out the details. And I don't know what that looks like for you. It probably doesn't look like a proposal like this, right? It probably looks much different, but it might be some other kind of proposal. It might be a, a business proposal where you have to really put yourself out there and say, I don't know how you're going to work through all this, God, but I believe that you're going to provide for me one way or another, and I'm going to put myself out there, and I'm going to make an outlandish proposal that they either have to say absolutely not or yes, well, I'll do that. And you, you're blow, blown up in generosity. You just, wow, I can't believe that just happened. But there's many times when that does happen. There's times in my life, there's been times in your life where you've put yourself out there. You have no idea what's going to happen, but God just works powerfully through it. So maybe it's a business, business proposal. Who knows what it is? Maybe it's an evangelism proposal, right? That person in your life that you have that relationship with that you would think they're never going to come to the Lord. But you're thinking, how can I engage the gospel with them? I know that they are the way that they are because they're broken sinners in need of rest just like me. How can I engage them? And a maybe risky kind of faith where I'm just throwing myself out there. They might call me a loser. They might call me all kinds of names. But how can I place myself in faithfulness to God to engage God and the people around me in this kind of faith? I don't know what that looks like for you. you. There's probably things that you can think of in your mind, and God's going to have to show that to you. And I pray by, that the Holy Spirit is doing that now, that he's impressing things on your heart where it all works out that way. But just know that all through Scripture... The people who are commended for their faith are doing things that don't make sense. 
And I'm not telling you to act irrational all the time, but if you look at the hall of faith, as they sometimes call it in Hebrews 11, think of the people and what they're doing. You have Noah in a desert, in a land where there's been no rain, and he's, he's building an ark. He's building a giant boat where there's no water. And people are saying, you're insane, Noah. You're absolutely ridiculous. There could be nothing more stupid than building this boat here out in the middle of a desert. And then God makes fools out of all those people and floods the world. And then Noah gets taken away in that stupid boat that <laughs> saves everyone, right? That's, that's the way it works. And, there's this, and you see Abraham in the Hall of Faith. God called him to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. What is that about? That's insane. That's risky. What in the world? And he did it. He started to go up on the mountain. He said, God, I don't know how this works out. I have no idea. And in, in fact, it actually seems counterintuitive. Like, I, I don't think that you want me killing my kids. And yet you just told me to. So I'm just, I'm just going to do it. I, I think that this is what you're telling me to do. And it was. It was what God was telling them to do. And then at the very last moment... God provides. He had no idea how that was going to work up. He's having his kid carry the wood for him. right? Can you imagine the thoughts going through his mind and the thoughts that are going to probably go through your mind if you're going to live out a faithful walk with the Lord? We don't know how it all falls out. But we do know that God calls us to this radical faith that sometimes doesn't make any sense. Rahab, think of her. She's a prostitute. This prostitute all of a sudden has these people jump over the wall and are coming in her house. And she's like, all right, okay, let's go. And it's something different. God's working through this, right? They're coming to storm Jericho. And there's this moment where she gets to hide people in her house. When people come and say, where are they at? She, she lies. What's that? Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not lie. Like, we don't lie. And she lies. And yet she makes it to Roman or to Hebrews 11 as one of the hall of faith people. Right? It's really complex. It's almost paradoxical where this, there's this striving after faith. And yet we, when we're there, we get that real, true, genuine rest. We find it. We get to experience it. And that's really what, or in those moments where we're there, that we're being tested. And that's what happens in this story. When Ruth returns, she comes back to, to, to meet uh, Ruth. And Ruth asks her a question that I think is very important for us. Now, many of your translations, if, if you're reading the modern translations, they change this a little bit, and I don't like it. The, my translation, the ESV, says, how did you fare, my daughter? I don't like that. The, the King James says, who art thou, my daughter? And I think that hits uh, the situation a little bit better, because Naomi in that moment isn't asking who she is as a person. She says, my daughter. She knows it's Ruth. What she's saying is, where do you stand? Kind of the same question that we asked last time. Remember, to whom does this one belong? She says, who are you? Are you Mrs. Redeemer? How did it go last night? Are, are you a changed person? Have you got that rest that you're searching for? So she asked her this to have a heart question. Where are you at, Ruth? How is this going to work out? And Ruth essentially just says, this is what happened. And her advice back to her is, is wait. Wait on the Lord. She says in verse 18, uh, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle, settle the matter today. Today. She says you don't have to wait very long. right? You, you do have to wait now. Just sit still for a minute, and God will work it out. She says Boaz will work it out, essentially. But we can see through our spiritual glasses that God is going to work this out. And what is the timeline for this? Is it in in 50 years? Is it in three days? Who knows? No, it's today. 
Now, when we jump back to Hebrews, remember we get this New Testament idea of what's going on with rest. If we keep reading, we left off in verse 5. Verse 6 through 10 says this in Hebrews 4. Since therefore it remains for some to enter this rest, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, catch this, he appoints a certain day, today. Today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, if you do not experience that rest for your soul today, church, if you don't get that peace of God, knowing that God is actually covering his wings over you, where you have this absolute rest in your soul, where you know, God, I am taken care of by you. If you don't receive that, and if you don't experience that, you can receive that today. You don't have to wait for that. You don't have to wait for some experience down the road. You don't have to wait three years from now where you get your life cleaned up. You can have that today. Because the word says that today is the day of salvation. So if you don't experience that, if you've been in church all your life and you still don't know what it means to rest in God, I'd encourage you, please talk to me after service. We, we can get this matter settled today just like Ruth was promised, right? That was the promise that Naomi says. She says, this guy, this redeemer, he's going to settle the matter today. He cares for you. He's going to get it figured out one way or another. I don't know what it looks like yet. And we know what it looks like because we can read chapter 4. But at the time, that didn't make sense to them. They didn't have chapter 4 to read ahead. All they had was wait on the Lord and experience that rest today. It's coming for you. Do you know that rest, church? If you don't, we can get it settled today. Let's pray. Father, I pray for every individual in this room, but especially anyone who doesn't experience that rest that you offer us in Jesus. You offer us assurance of salvation where we can lay our heads down on a pillow at night and know that if anything happens, that we are safe in your arms. And Lord, I pray that everyone in this room would be able to rest on that promise of the gospel that we have today. Lord, we pray that for those who do know this rest, that we would rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, that we would experience that, rejoice in it as we rest on this Lord's Day, the, the day of rest that you've given to us. We pray that we would cultivate our faith by pursuing you, loving you in the things that we do, even in our play, the way that we love you today. We pray that we would feel your presence. And Lord, we pray that you would apply these truths to our hearts we ask that as we walk out these doors this morning, that you would help us to know how we are to engage you, how we are to step out in that kind of risky faith that you so often call us to. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let us continue.